if you were here like many of us in the 90s, you might have thought you just saw Tommy Havens, you know, so um, uh, anyway, it's a great morning of worship. Thank you, Robert and crew. Uh, if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, we'll begin in verse 22 uh, today. Today we continue to study the sons of Eli, um, particularly in comparison to what God is doing in the life of Samuel. There's kind of a juxtaposition or a contrast going on, I think, in this text. Uh, we'll call this the priest warning today. It's not a warning coming from the priest. It's a warning given to the priest, um, just to make sure you understand the tilt of the text. Um, we're going to see God's displeasure with Eli and his sons on full display um, this morning. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. we got a lot of text to cover, um, so um, I will ask you to go ahead and stand with me out of reverence respect for the Word of God, um, but I've got these first few verses, the first four verses on the screen, and we will um, consider these together. Then we'll read the rest of our text as we go along, um, and I'll go ahead and give you the start of the outline. We're going to talk about how judgment is disregarded here, but this is verses 22 through 25 of our passage today. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, some read this early portion of the text where it begins in, uh, in verse uh, 22. It says, now Eli was very old, um, as if that's an excuse, I think, for what we're about to read. I, I don't think it's intended to be that way. Um, we'll see why as we go along, um, but it is... I think worth noting I think it's there for a reason and I would suspect it's there to kind of let us know that that Eli is not really fully aware of everything that's happening in and around the temple grounds I, I think he is barely engaged I say temple I mean tabernacle he's barely engaged in the events that are occurring in the tabernacle I believe he has kind of delegated um, the priestly work to his sons um, and he's kind of dependent upon the rumor mill um, to know what was happening. Um, now, it's clear that his sons are, are wicked um, men. It's equally clear that he, um, whether he knew it um, for a while or not, he eventually learns it. Um, you, you back up there and it says, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Okay, it's not one or two or three people implying that something wicked is going on. I think it's a, it's a strong contingent um, of the righteous folks in Israel um, who see what's happening. And then he goes on, It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. It's obvious there's problems. Um, it's obvious to most of Israel that Hopni and Phinehas were wicked um, from their improper handling of the sacrifices to their adultery um, with the women at the tent of meeting. Everyone knew it, and Eli certainly does as well by the time you get into the heart of this text. Now, he asked an interesting question here. So then why do you do such things? Um, and it sounds like something we would ask. Anyone ever had, you know, one of their children do something really, really silly or um, not very smart, you might say. And you say, what are you thinking? You know, why would you do that? Um, it sounds like something we would ask, but let's be honest. I mean, 
is this an intelligent question? Is this a worthwhile question? I, I don't believe that it is. Um, because the reality is there is no justification or excuse for their behavior. I, I don't care what their answer is to why you do such things, but they're wrong. It shouldn't be happening. There is no excuse. They don't need some you know, fatherly advice or encouragement uh, or a chance to explain themselves. What they need is a rebuke. Um, but again, I, I think this is where, from a contemporary standpoint, I'm afraid we do a lot of the same things. People do something wicked and something destructive, self-destructive, uh, uh, or something that harms other people, and we want to swoop in and go, well, help me understand why you would think that was a good choice. And I, We've lost our minds, folks. Um, when things are a really bad choice, you don't enable someone by letting them excuse their behavior or letting them reference their past or letting them blame somebody else. You have to deal with the reality of the wickedness. These young men needed a stern rebuke from their father. They needed discipline. The reality is they needed to be removed from their position as priests. And Eli had the power to do that, but he doesn't do so. And, and despite the fact that there are some some words of biblical wisdom you could say um, that are shared here uh, you look at verse 25 it says if someone sins against a man as Eli talking to his sons if someone sins against a man God will mediate for him but if someone sins against the Lord who can intercede for him that's not um, unbiblical in a dispute between men um, there's always a chance that God might supernaturally intervene. He might turn things in one way or the other. But if you sin against the Lord, particularly under Israel's covenant with the Lord, remember, it was a conditional covenant. If you do good, God will bless you. If you do wrong, God will judge you. That was the terms of the agreement. His point is, if, it, if you sin against God, there's only going to be judgment coming. That's the way it's going to work. Now, we should thankfully admit that this is where the gospel comes into view. Um, our relationship with the Lord is, is much better than this, much greater than this. It's not a conditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we know that we have all sinned against the Lord, and there's nothing we can do to make it right. The just penalty for our actions is death. And in a sense, they're just talking about the, the bad news. What you've done is wrong, and what you deserve is judgment. There is no mediator. Is sort of what he's saying. Um, and uh, the bad news of the gospel kind of gets to that place. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, there's sin on our side of the ledger, period. So in this sense, Eli is right. They had sinned against God, and they were without a mediator. Uh, Job 9, uh, much the same, says there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Um, Job is kind of pouring out his heart to the Lord. Let him take away his rod, or let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I'm not so in myself. What he's really saying is, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what I've done. I, I can't. There's no one to to mediate between me and a holy God. God is up here, and I'm down here, and, and there's no way to bridge the gap. I'm at a loss. And that's really what Eli is trying to say to his sons. You've sinned and rebelled against a holy God. Judgment is rightfully going to fall, and there, there's no answer for you. There's no mediator. Job knew that he was laid bare before a holy God, and he could only plead for a mediator. But let's be honest, Job was not guilty of the kind of sins, the crimes of Hopni and Phineas. Now, every one of us, you might say, has a different level of culpability when it comes to our sin. 
Maybe we have not um, slept with a woman at the, the tabernacle grounds, okay? We, whatever their crimes are, it's pretty heinous, however you want to slice it. There is something in all of us, though, we like to justify our own sins and condemn everybody else's. We always assume what we've done is not near as bad as what somebody else has done. But I hope you understand the, the weight of the Word of God. You know, we all have sin on our side of the ledger, and the just punishment of sin, according to a holy God, is death. And so I don't know what you've done or how you've done it or, or how culpable you are, but here's the reality. I believe dead is dead. Anybody follow me on that? You know, dead is dead. It, it's, it, it's kind of an unconditional term. Dead is dead regardless of the degree of your sin. Now, we know when God's Word says that uh, for the wage of sin is death, we know it's talking about eternal death, separation um, from God. But you know what? It, it doesn't really matter how sinful you were to get there, if you get there, you're going to regret it. And that's what we all deserve. And so, in this sense, as you, as you understand the bad news, I think we also have to understand that there's a foreshadowing here of the really, really good news. Uh, Eli and his sons may not experience it. Whether we deserve it or not, though, we have been given the possibility of a mediator. There is a, a way... Um, uh, not just for a mediator, there's, there's the possibility of something much greater than that, someone who's actually paid the penalty for our sin. Romans 3, um, start of that verse, we've already talked about, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but keep reading, thankfully, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, even as a, as a mediator. It even goes on to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who what, has faith in Jesus. See, we all have sin on our side of the ledger, but God has made a way for us. We have a mediator if we have faith in Jesus Christ and how he came and he lived and he died and he defeated death, hell, and the grave and he was resurrected. He, he's made a way for us if we'll trust in his shed blood. That's the good news. Eli's saying, you don't have a mediator. You, you've, you've sinned against God. You've rebelled against God. You're just going to incur judgment, but that's not... The covenant that we live under, we have something much greater than that. Hebrews 7, much the same. Consequently, he, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. I'm glad we don't have Hopney and Phineas. Such a high priest, and it goes on, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. That is our mediator. So let me ask you, friends, do you know Jesus as your mediator, as your intercessor? Do you understand what he did on the cross to purchase you forgiveness before a holy God? We have to reconcile ourselves to, those, to the good news and embrace our mediator. Now, of course, this text points, I think, both um, to our need to make a decision for Jesus Christ, but it also brings us back to the heart of this situation. These priests were unworthy men. 
They were standing in condemnation before a holy God. They had no mediator. Uh, The reality is, the way I think we're supposed to see this text is that they have burned through the grace of God. It's much like the situation we saw with with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Um, Here's the text about them today. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. You look at God and dealing with Pharaoh in Exodus 7. You probably remember some of this. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God knew what he was going to do. God knew he was going to refuse real repentance. God gets to the place where I I believe he certainly understands the heart of Hopney and Phineas, and and there's, there's no way back for them. We don't have to do a deep dive into the balance of the sovereignty of God and the free will of men. Um, We don't have time for that, but I I can sell any doubt in your mind this way. God is the ultimate judge, and he is righteous and just and perfect, and he never makes a mistake in judgment. And it tells us very clearly in this text, he has reached the place where these men deserve wrath. There's no other option. And so the wrath is coming. So if it's the will of the Lord to put these men to death... I think we got to know they had it coming. Just as Pharaoh had earned his judgment as well. And when God is determined to destroy, no human intercession is is effective. Uh, There's no way uh, to avoid it. Uh, I think old John Wesley put it accurately. He said they had sinned away their day of grace. They had long hardened their hearts. And again, it's above my pay grade to uh, understand how they got here and, and, and all that. This is what I know. If God is convicting you of your sin you need to understand you have a mediator and his name is Jesus Christ and he's made a way for you and you have to turn from your sin you have to repent you have to trust him I I, I don't know how it looks like I don't know what it looks like I don't know when it looks like but I know this there is there's a time and a place in which you pass the point of no return it may be on your deathbed. I don't know what else to say. But I know this, you're not guaranteed forever. And for whatever reason in this text, it's being made plain to us that these men had gone too far and the judgment of God was coming. And Eli's pitiful effort at, at rebuking them did little good. In fact, it just served to prove that he was part of the problem. To tolerate sin and to not deal with it is to participate in the sin. Now, that's a message for another day that our culture needs to hear, but we don't have time to go there, okay? Uh, I believe our culture has endorsed more sin by our silence than any other culture in the last hundred years or more. But anyway, Hebrews 10, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? I believe that's where they are. That Hebrews text goes on, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's something about our generation. We want to talk about grace. We want to talk about mercy. We want to celebrate our, our Savior. We want to talk about the mediator. It's all about grace, 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 grace. But do you, you do understand that God's judgment is still a real thing. That judgment is going to fall that we're culpable for our sins, that we, we have to come to terms with, with our sin and do business with God. And, and not everyone is promised eternity just because God is good and gracious. You understand that? I think that's one of the reasons why this text is here. There's a wickedness in man that encounters the judgment of God. And all of us naively, I think, preach a gospel that makes it sound like everybody's going to get in because God is so good. And we ignore the truth of his word the reality is God judges 
sin. Now, don't misunderstand. I sincerely believe in the depths of the grace of God. I believe in deathbed conversions. I believe you can ignore God for 85 years and, and the goodness of the gospel says that someone lying on the deathbed can, can see the reality of the risen Jesus and confess their sins and accept Him and they can be quickened and redeemed in that moment. I, I believe that happens. I believe God is good and merciful and loving. But I also believe the text supports the reality that there is a line crossed where the door to forgiveness can be shuttered forever. It's God's choice. God gets to do that. And it's above my pay grade to know where and when that happens, but Scripture says it happens. Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you don't want to imagine the kind of wrath that you will incur if God turns you loose in that way. It happened in the lives of Hopney and Phineas. And I think it happened in the life of Eli as well. Now, I think the wise takeaway for us would be to not walk in their shoes. Amen? Confess. Repent. Keep short accounts. Uh, with the Lord, throw ourselves on His mercy and grace. And with that in mind, we're given a contrast here to their evil deeds right here in the text, I believe. This is that juxtaposition. We've seen Hopney. We've seen Phineas. We understand they're disregarding the judgment of God. Well, right beside them, you got this little judge developing in a completely different way. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. I mean, I hope you understand the subtlety with this which with this text is dropped in. Uh, Hopney and Phineas are, are wicked and running from God and profaning the tabernacle. Uh, you can't imagine how bad they are. And then here's little Samuel, like one of a kind, like uh, this righteous little young man. And, and we'll see in the text, I sincerely, he, he hasn't even come to a, a faith relationship with the Lord yet. He just, he knows who God is. He, he knows a little bit about his word. His heart's directed toward God. He's going to encounter God in a powerful way in the weeks ahead. But he, he's laboring in the tabernacle. He's seeing the wickedness of these men around him. Uh, and yet he's, he's seeking God the right way. We've already seen it before. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Um, he's, he's seeking God. He's coming to know God. Um, it's familiar language in Scripture. It's used to describe actually the one whom we should all seek to imitate. Uh, Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. God has provided the leadership that we all need. His name is Jesus Christ. We've got to keep our eyes on him. You know, one of the things that's, that's hard about celebrating 150 years as a church is we have been influenced and, uh, and blessed with so many men and women of old that have done extraordinary things in the, in the history of this church. We, we can't celebrate them all, but let's do it this way. Any of those that had any powerful influence on us only had that influence because of Jesus Christ. Period. They don't get the glory, he gets the glory. He's the one that we should emulate. He's the one we should look toward. And if there's anything good that comes out of this pulpit or this church or the pulpit in the past, it's because of Jesus. And I think that's the reality here. These two young men were wicked. Yes, you've got little Samuel, but Samuel was only as good as, as God could take him, so to speak. It's, 
Jesus is the model. He's the leadership that we need. The true mark is always Christ. You know, Paul had the, the confidence to say, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to what? The example you have in us. But we've got to understand that elsewhere, Paul made it plain that his example was Jesus. Only follow Paul so far as he follows Jesus. That's uh, the weight of this text. Uh, John 13. Jesus says it, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do, just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is our target. All right, so Samuel's growing, but we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Now back to Eli, Hopney, and Phineas unfortunately back to the bad news we see judgment declared next now if we consider the big picture of God's dealings with Israel at this point we would see that God has been silent for several generations there hasn't been a, a prophet on the scene in a while. If you uh, flash forward to uh, the first verse of the next chapter, um, the second half of that verse, it's going to say, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Uh, there was not a lot of prophecy going on. There were very few prophets for hundreds of years. But now one comes on the scene, just briefly, in this text. Okay, um, And there's a phrase used that always refers to a prophet of God or the words of God. Thus says the Lord. That's what the prophet says. And he has a message of judgment for Eli. And the judgment is going to be both corporate and personal. First, he references the past. And here's where we get into a lot of that text I talked about. Verses 27 and 28. And there came a man of God. All right, there's your prophet. Just shows up out of nowhere. To Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Now again, this is a prophet sharing the word of the Lord, and what he's going to share are a series of rhetorical questions that God is asking Eli. Okay, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. We've seen rhetorical questions from God before. I remember when God shows up, this is the most familiar to me, in, in the book of Job, and he asked Job question after question after question after question. Uh, Job 38 is kind of the beginning of it. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Tell me about that. You know, it goes on. We're not going to read it all, but who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And there's a, another 70, 80, 90 questions after that. The questions there are different from the questions here, but the effect is the same. The answer to each of these questions is yes. Eli knew that. God knew that. But each question just reveals again to Eli. It reminds him of how blessed he's been and his family has been since the time of the Exodus. What a privilege it was that he is now taking for granted and certainly his sons are taking for granted to step into the shoes of the priesthood uh, to provide a faint Old Testament echo of the coming true priest, the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. That's the opportunity they have. 
Exodus 28, verse 1 takes us back to the beginning of this promise. Now then bring near to you, and this is God speaking to Moses, bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. This is the establishing of the, the high priesthood in Israel. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar. From the beginning, the Levites um, were set aside for the priesthood, period, but only the sons of Aaron were set aside for the high priesthood to run through them. Okay, that's the way it worked. Now there was trouble early on, you may remember, with Nadab and Abihu, uh, much like the, the sins of Hopni and Phinehas. You may remember th Numbers 3-2, but Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of, uh, of Sinai, and they had no children. Uh, they, were, they were messing with the offerings. They were uh, wicked in what they were doing, just like Hopni and Phinehas. And we know what happened to them. Well, what goes around comes around. It's getting ready to happen again. Now, again, historically, it's worth noting, so Eleazar and Ithmar, the two youngest sons of Aaron, served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father, and the lineage of the high priest went through their descendants. Nadab and Abihu had no children, okay? Eventually, over time, um, these are both ancestors of Eli. They gotta know he's in the line of Aaron. Eventually, the high priesthood comes to rest in the hands of Eleazar, okay? Uh, we can look at uh, Deuteronomy and elsewhere to understand that. Uh, although the descendants of Ithmar were certainly still eligible to serve as priests, um, and we eventually see them grafted back into the vine of the high priesthood. Uh, Eleazar, I think, gets the priesthood more than, or the high priesthood more than anything because of the actions of another man named Phineas. And I hope this hadn't confused anybody. Um, if you're familiar a little bit with the scripture, Phineas. Um, in Numbers is one of the most godly men in Scripture, I believe. Don't confuse that Phineas with this Phineas in 1 Samuel 2, okay? Um, uh, back in Numbers 25, the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Um, we're not going to go into that whole text, but, you know, there were a couple people doing some things they weren't supposed to do, and Phineas, anyway, well, I'm not... You just read about that yourself. I'm not even going to mention that on a Sunday morning. But one way or the other, he did something admirable in God's eyes. You might not think so when you read the text, but I believe he did. He was jealous for, the, um, uh, for God. And so God chooses to route the high priesthood through um, the sons of Eleazar because of that Phineas in Numbers 25. Now, this is where I want to avoid too many rabbit trails, and I've already actually gone down too many of them. I apologize. In studying this text, trust me, there's a million ways to take a lot of this. So bear with me as I try to abbreviate. Concisely put, we know Eli was a descendant of Ithmar, Aaron's other son, not Eleazar. Okay? Um, the last time God's word refers to the high priest's office, like in Numbers and Deuteronomy, it, it's, it's here, these descendants of Eleazar are, are running the high priest's office. Somewhere along the line, that changes. We really don't know why or how until we find Eli sitting in the high priest's chair in this text. Again, he's not Eleazar's descendant, he's Ithmar's descendants. They're all descendants of Aaron, if you really want to split the hairs. But anyway, we don't know why this happened. We never get any commentary on whether it was God's plan or, or more of Israel doing whatever was right in Israel's eyes. We just don't know. 
I don't ever see God judging them for this, so I, I think it must have been a necessity for whatever reason in the family heritage. But we know this. God is about to render an official judgment on Eli's side of the family right here. I have to believe he came into office without God's opposition because there's been nothing said to this point. It's not his usurpation of the priesthood that gets him judged by God. It's his unwillingness to confront his son's wickedness that brings judgment. All right, so now we move to the next thing. That was about the past. That's how um, Eli and his boys came to this place. They've been blessed to get there. All right, here we're celebrating 150 years. All right, we've been blessed to get here. Amen. Uh, I think we should be mindful of that. More than anything over these four weeks, I hope you hear and understand how thankful we should be as a church for our past. I think that's what God's trying to... Eli, you didn't deserve what you've been given. But unfortunately, you haven't appreciated it. Now he speaks about the present. This is verses, our verse 29. Why then... Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? And again, I don't want to go too far in applying our 150-year celebration of this text, but I'm humbled and I'm frightened to think that we could be guilty of doing the same sort of thing. We've been blessed. We don't deserve to be here. We, we've been blessed in, in so many ways, and yet is it not easy in our generation to take for granted what we've been given? 150 years ago, people were, were in a one-room schoolhouse, so to speak. Look at all that we have now. And it, it's very easy in, in human temptation for us to think, well, we did this. Church, there's nothing good in this place that came from the hands of men. It's all God. It's all God. And this text, it, it challenges me because they had been blessed. They were the high priest. They were working in the tabernacle. They were close to the Shekinah glory. They had access to the, to the best of the holy things of Israel, and yet they were the wicked ones. And God says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? Why are you the ones leading out this way? And so we see his son's crimes laid bare before us. Now, the implication is that Eli is just as guilty. He's the high priest. He's responsible for conducting the sacrificial system in the tabernacle. And so he's guilty of everything he's allowed his sons to do. The word scorn here is literally translated to kick or to tread upon. It, it's, in, it's very similar to that word despise. We saw last week they were despising the offerings of God. It's an ugly picture. So is the phrase fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering. Are we using resources of God for our own benefit or the benefit of the gospel? It, it, that question rattles around. There's no way to avoid it, I think. Now, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering. I, I don't want to give away the ending of all this drama, but lest we forget Eli was not just old, he was morbidly obese. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, this is 1 Samuel 4, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Uh, you know, you can temporize that however you want, but don't fatten yourself on the choicest parts of every offering. Amen? I'm not talking about gluttony or anyway, so maybe I am. I, you apply that how you want to. But I, I don't think it's a mistake that God uses those words. 
you've gotten old and heavy by abusing your power. We can't miss it. And, and so the sins of his sons were attributed to him, primarily because he had chosen what? To honor his sons above God. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You want to preach a contemporary sermon, I could settle in right here and say every parent who's ever changed their theology in order to accommodate the sins of their children has committed the same crime. Now, that, we don't have time for that message, do we? But I think our culture needs to listen. We're not going to camp out there. You're all off the hook if you have children. Back to the specifics of the high priesthood, okay? Let's stay in our text. About the priesthood. Eli, Hopney, and Phineas were entering the twilight of their priestly careers. There's no way around that. And so we see, first, the prophet make sure they understand that there is a promise forfeited here uh, in verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares. Again, this is a prophet speaking on behalf of God. These are God's words. I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and, and go out before me forever, meaning serve in, in this role as priest. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God truly is a God of justice, and we all get what we deserve, barring the blood of Jesus being counted on our behalf. And even after salvation, we must remember that God desires that we bring him glory through our lives. Amen? Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. That will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, it's easy for New Testament believers to say, but, but this text, it's, it's about the high priesthood. The severity of these standards don't really apply to my life or my sin, right? Well, that's not really a good New Testament interpretation. 1 Peter 2.9, but you, you, me, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, we often talk about how, thankfully, we're no longer under a priestly system. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You have Jesus. And so, in that sense, you are your own functioning priest. You run straight to God. You render sacrifice. You give praise. You make prayer. But see, if you're really understanding the severity of what's being said... With privilege comes responsibility, amen? Should be humbling a little bit. Should be even a little scary. Now, I don't want to ignore the obvious. There is a high, high standard for pastors, preachers, deacons, and, and teachers in the New Testament. It makes that plain. We have much in common with the priesthood in the Old Testament, but ultimately every believer is a priest in the house of God. And so none of us can consider sin unimportant. Romans 6 what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, be abound, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? And it goes on. And more than I got on the screen. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Eli and his family were about to see God's severity towards sin 
when it occurs in the priesthood. All right, so a, a promise forfeited. Now we see a punishment instituted. Here's verses 31 through 34. A little bit of text for you, but it says, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom you... Of, of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men and this that shall come upon your two sons Hopney and Phineas shall be the sign to you both of them shall die on the same day now you don't have to have a degree in understanding prophecy to get that that didn't sound good right none of that's good God's judgment is about to fall and, and we're not going to chase all the rabbits about this prophecy and the future judgment on Eli's family right now just suffice it to say that it all happens his descendants are all but eradicated um, during the time of Saul um, and in First Chronicles when the Levitical priesthood is referenced again and the descendancy is mentioned it's as if Eli no longer exists he's not referenced at all only the sons of Eleazar are listed again at that point because God has judged Eli and his wicked sons. And <clears throat> we're going to see the most overt sign of this judgment in 1 Samuel chapter 4 in a few weeks when the, the death of both of his sons occur on the exact same day. But we won't get lost in those rabbit tracks today. You may be hoping for this, and I, I can deliver. There is good news to finish with this morning, okay? Uh, there's a promise forfeited, a punishment instituted, but there's a priesthood reborn. It's what we have to love about the character and the nature of God. He has a plan, even when the priesthood fails. All right, and talking about the priesthood, verses 35 and 36. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. I think we should read that in turn. Unlike you, Eli, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore for him a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread. God doesn't relent on grinding Eli's family, I think. There's more bad news for them. They've feasted unfaithfully on the best of the offerings that should have been reserved for the Lord. They've grown fat, but soon they'll be begging for a single piece of silver or a single piece of bread. Their honor and prestige will be replaced by disgrace and poverty. But, more importantly, from a good news perspective, they've done nothing to thwart the plan of God or the priesthood. We need to all understand this. God buries the dead and his work continues. You can't thwart the plan of God. Uh, again, that verse 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. wonder who he's alluding to. Now, this is where, uh, let's be honest, beautiful truth about most prophecy in scripture um, you can argue about what kind of good news this is referring to I would tell you it's a multi-layered prophecy like again most prophecies in scripture there tends to be a present uh, reality that it's alluding to and then there's a future often eternal reality that's being alluded to in this text I will raise up for myself a faithful priest let's not forget that little Samuel standing in the shadows almost quite literally as we read this Okay, Hopney and Phineas, wicked contrast is you got little Samuel who's being raised up by God to replace them and to be a faithful priest in the house of the Lord. That's happening, okay? But the language goes way beyond Samuel. 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I'll build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Well, Samuel is not even of the line of Aaron, so he's going to temporarily step in, but he can't be the fulfillment of those promises. In the days of David, the high priesthood actually reverts back to the line of Eleazar through the priesthood of a man named Zadok and his descendants. So, uh, again, the time of Ithmar and Eli becomes a footnote in Scripture, but it's not got anything to do with Samuel. So who's he talking about? Who's the, uh, the faithful priest that he will raise up forever who will be given a sure house? Well, if you're not thinking about Jesus, you're, not, you're forgetting you're in church, okay? It's got to be who we're talking about here. Now, it may, when you, when you talk about he shall go in and out before my anointed forever, pretty soon that language is going to always refer to the king, and, and, and there's, you know, the king and the priest are somewhat connected. Um, and we've got to be thinking about King David here, sure. Um, king David's involved. It foreshadows some of the fulfillment of these signs. But really, when you put David and the priesthood and all that on paper, you should be thinking about the one true priest, the one true prophet, the one true king. His name is Jesus Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. That's that sure house, that sure lineage that goes on forever. We've already read part of this text, but I want to read it all in sequence. Hebrews 7, uh, verse 23 through 28. <clears throat> the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You don't need Eli. You don't need Hopney. You don't need Phineas. You don't even need Samuel. You need Jesus. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. The fulfillment of the words of God in this text, it's not Samuel, it's not David, it's Jesus. Eli, Hopney, and Phineas. well, guess what? They, they point the wrong way. We want to make sure we're pointing the right way, and the right way is always toward Jesus. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Who are you following, friends? We're going to have a time of invitation, and I pray if you're not following Jesus, you would get right. Come to know him as your Lord and Savior. But also, again, in the midst of this 150 years, I just please hear my heart. I don't want to leave anybody out who's influenced this congregation. Uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But at the end of the day, if celebrating 150 years of God's faithfulness to this church gives anybody a platform other than Jesus, we've done it wrong. Jesus is the answer to all the questions, all the hurts, all the pain, all the sorrow. He's the only one that can bring salvation, and he is the only one responsible for what's happened in this place over the last 150 years. Let's stand and give him honor and praise.